Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Well, Dr. Frank Turek will not be with you today, but I am Detective J. Warner Wallace, uh, and you've heard us speak back and forth on our show here, and you've probably been following Frank. You know uh, on his social media, you know at crossexamine.org, even on the YouTube channel, and on this radio show, he's talked about uh, the declining health of his father. And sadly, this morning, uh, well, not sadly, his dad went to be with Jesus today, uh, about a couple of hours ago. That's the time of this recording. Uh, so this week, uh, you know, Frank lost his dad. Uh, your prayers are much appreciated. We have been praying for Frank for weeks. It's so great that he had the ability to spend as much time as he did in the last month with his dad. You know, a lot of times he was, uh, we were standing in for him or uh, he was putting things on, on hold so he could spend time with his family. And uh, sure enough, now, uh, Frank's dad is no longer in any pain. He is in the presence of Jesus and uh, waiting for us to get there. So be praying for Frank's family uh, as we are. And uh, thanks so much for being patient with us as we kind of recalibrate what we're going to do today. But we have a great show uh, coming up for you. Um, it's been said that something rarely becomes important until it affects you personally. As a matter of fact, Thomas Sowell once said that something to the extent of like, you know, you, you would be more upset if an accident caused you to lose the tip of your little finger than if you heard a million people in China were, or any part of the world were murdered today because it doesn't seem to affect you personally, right? I mean, the things that Frank is experiencing now with the loss of his dad are all kind of philosophical and academic until they happen to you. And there's lots of things that this is this is like in our, our experience in life. We hear other people suffering from things, but it just doesn't affect us. You, you'll hear about people, you know, sick with cancer or they lose their jobs or they have a bad school experience or educational process. Or you even hear about racism. But a lot of people who are living in the middle class white America just don't perceive the experience of racism the same way. Of course they don't. Of course we don't. I'm in that group. And so it doesn't become an issue that we even presses on our, our experience of everyday life to such an extent that we think about it the way that others will have to think about it. And I can tell you, as a guy who worked as a white police officer in Los Angeles County for 25 years, you know, I was probably maybe eight or nine years on the job before I became a Christian. And, and I've been thinking deeply about the nature of humanity, who we are. I had to think about that even when I was thinking about the, the, the offer of salvation, right, as, as a person who was examining Christianity. And as much as I think about it, as much as I've worked in this industry, I feel like there's still a lot that I don't know that I need to learn. And a lot of that comes through um, having, uh, you know, uh, your questions addressed. And that's why I want to have a conversation today with is someone who's a friend. Now, what's great about this is this morning when Frank told me his father passed and asked me to, to step into this conversation. I, I had hesitation because I wasn't, you know, I hadn't been preparing all week for this, but I knew the person I was going to talk to was somebody who was more than just an associate, somebody I had heard of. Uh, it was actually somebody who I considered to be family. And I thought, wow, is God opening a door for this conversation that I need to step through? Because what are the odds of, of, of having a conversation where you have two sides of a polarized issue? One, a, a, an old boomer white guy who happens to be a police officer, and two, a young black uh, millennial 
who is can can speak to this issue directly, both of whom know each other, who we know our families. I've attended uh, uh, Beta's church. I'll introduce Beta in a second. Um, Beta's attended our uh, presentations with his family. Our families know each other, okay? And we can have this conversation. I just, how can I say no to that opportunity? So I want to introduce you to my friend and fellow Christian apologist, Veda Hedgeman. Now, now Veda is, uh, grew up in South Central Los Angeles, very close to the community that I worked in. Um, and this is an area of Los Angeles is most, for the most part, people would, would say that they're known for the kind of a, a, a gang, uh, a region, which has, it, 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 this is an area that you would say, okay, well, his experience growing up is probably different than you, yours is the person who's listening to this radio show growing up where, where Veda grew up, there was a, a gang lifestyle. And he would say that too. And, and he survived all of that. He even grew up as an atheist, but found Christ pretty early in his twenties. And since then, this dude has just rocketed into uh, making the case for Christianity as an apologist. Uh, he, he really is a singer, songwriter, producer. This is the thing that's so great about as a songwriter and a producer, because he has a different approach, a, a creative approach. Aside from all the other things that are true about Veda, um, he is creative. And I want to introduce him right now. He runs a, a, a radio show called He is a Real One Radio. You can go on YouTube. You should go on YouTube. He's got two beautiful girls, a beautiful wife. He lives in uh, Los Angeles County. And please look up his YouTube channel for sure. So, Veda, we are going to have some time here in the next segment. But just tell us, uh, first of all, I want to introduce you, Veda Hedgeman. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And uh, condolences to Frank and the family. And I'm excited to have this conversation, man. Yeah, so I don't want to waste a lot more of the, the just in terms of the, the the beginnings of the conversation. Let's just but tell people how you grew up and and how you became a Christian and then an apologist. Well, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, as you just said. You know, I did grow up in a gang culture. You know, I, as you said, I would say that I was a gang member as well, and I was a non-believer. Didn't even think about God too much. It just wasn't a, um, a part of my life. You know, I didn't have anybody in my life who would talk to me about God, you know, but I've always been an authentic truth seeker. So I was never a hostile non-believer. I just thought that Christianity was foolishness. Never read the Bible, but I heard about a dude walking on water and I was like, people don't walk on water. So that's stupid. You know, the Bible's fake, you know? And, uh, you know, just as I got older, and seeking truth, you know, uh, I believe if anybody seeks the truth with an open heart, what they're going to find is Jesus on the cross and dying and rising on the third day, you know, so I was seeking truth with an open heart. I found it and I'm so glad to be saved because Lord knows I don't deserve it, but I'm grateful that I serve a God that has grace and mercy. Boy, I tell you, you've been powerful. Um, your voice is powerful. Tell me uh, then, that's a big difference though between embracing Christ as Lord, which lots of folks do, and then deciding, no, I'm actually going to study, talk to people, uh, train myself, um, take advantage of opportunities to be an apologist. How did that start? Well, I've always been, you know, a, a passionate teacher, you know, of all things. And I actually had somebody, you know, say something to me that I think was really interesting. They actually made an analogy to my lifestyle as a gang member before. You know, I saw your presentation where you were talking about racial reconciliation and, and you used uh, the example of if someone sees someone and they'll and they don't know you, they'll ask you, where are you from? That's a confrontational right. situation. Where are you from? And if, the, and if you don't answer that question correctly, you know, you don't know how that situation is going to turn out. Now, 
the Lord is so sovereign that he can use someone who's used to that type of, you know, environment and use it for his glory. You know, Paul didn't uh, didn't change. He just transformed. So he was radically different, yet exactly the same at the same time. He was just doing it yeah. for Christ. And, and, sim- and similarly for me, you know, doing ev- having evangelistic opportunities, you know, it, it might feel hostile. It might feel confrontational. But, you know, I, I grew up in you know, in hostile environments and the Lord is using that for his glory. Well, that's a good point you're bringing up. So we're going to be talking about the issue of systemic racism. And I know that if you just say that expression, you divide the room pretty quickly. But I want to talk, first of all, about how did you experience racism when you were young? Well, you know, I... As I say, you know, I grew up in a gang culture and I'm sure you know this as a, you know, as a police officer that the, that the, that it's a hostile relationship, you know, in, in impoverished neighborhoods in America, particularly places like Los Angeles, Baltimore, Chicago, et cetera, you know, and the police. So, you know, I had, I saw a meme recently that said, that asked the question, how old were you the first time a police officer pulled out a gun on you? And I was 12, you know, the first time I had a police officer pull out his, uh, pull out his gun on me. And I was just walking home from the store, you know, uh, wasn't doing anything. I was just walking home from the store and I really could go on and on about scenarios where I wasn't doing anything wrong and and you know I would get cussed out or something so situation yeah, like I want to yeah and I want to talk about that because that's something that personal experiences plays into this in such a big way so let's take a break right now when we come back we'll continue with Beta Hedgeman talking about issues of systemic race right here on Cross Exam. Friends, can you help me with something? Can you go up to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and give us a five-star review? Why? It will help more people see this podcast and therefore then hear it. So if you could help us out there, I'd greatly appreciate it. Jay Warner Wallace here with you on uh, Dr. Frank Turek's radio show. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Frank's dad passed this week, so you can be praying for Frank as he uh, is with his parents, with his mom, uh, and is uh, gratefully had some time with his dad before his dad passed. Now we're talking with Veda Hedgeman about uh, racism. And Veda, before the break, you talked about how when you were 12, um, an officer pointed a gun at you and really shaped your view of the divide, the racial divide. And so I know a lot of people are probably listening to that, and I have a question that follows up on it. Had that been a, uh, a black police officer, would you still have felt like it was an issue of you were being treated this way on the basis of race, or would it have been more of a, just a cop, non-cop thing? How, how would you have responded? Well, first I'll say that I didn't, I won't even say that it shaped my view or more so in my mind confirmed my view, you know, because, you know, I've always heard similar experiences. So that experience, although it was my first time was first time to me, uh, it wasn't surprising. You know, I anticipated that something like that would happen at some point, whether I'm innocent or guilty. Now, as far as whether it's a black cop, honestly, it's more of a culture thing. I can't speak for all of black America and, and anyone who grew up in an impoverished environment, but I know for me, I wouldn't have viewed, viewed it as any less racist if it was a black cop, an Asian cop, a Hispanic cop, because there is a culture that I'm, that I think about when I think of the police. So if it's a, so, so regardless of the ethnic group that the officer is, you know, it there, that's, this officer is doing 
what the racist culture has trained them to do. That is where my mind uh, was at that time. And that's where, you know, uh, that's how I would identify it. Yeah, I think that that's helpful for people to hear because I think most of us, I think, probably get that. But not everyone understands that distinction, that, that, that in fact, there's a sense in which there's – this is why we talk about the idea of systemic racism, right? That this is part right. of what you would say is there's something about the system of law enforcement. Now, now let's talk a little bit about um, – before we launch into some – I want this show today to be as, as diagnostic as it is helpful and hopeful going forward. But I think mm-hmm. we need to talk a little bit about this idea that people I hear now on the I see I've not posted anything on this, but I've seen people say, you know, I I support the notion that Black Lives Matter, but I do not support the organization called Black Lives Matter. <laughs> so right. I, I, and I don't think a lot of people maybe maybe people do understand the difference. Uh, but what is your sense of that difference between the sentiment or the idea, the philosophy, and the organization itself? Well, I'm really glad you asked that because I think the sentiment is simply a statement that is necessary to be said in America and it needs to be heard because all lives certainly matter. I I think most people would agree with that, but we also got to think that the Declaration of Independence said that all men are created equal with certain unalienable rights, which means undeniable rights. And we know that that didn't exist for black people at that time. So when we say the sentiment or the sentence or the words black lives matter, I think most people are just saying black lives matter also there's still systemic racism that impacts us we're saying we matter too now the organization is an organization that has that seems to have a political agenda certainly appears to be anti-christian and i think that is important for people who want to say black lives matter to know that distinction i I'm not going to stop saying Black Lives Matter just because of the organization. But I do think we should know the distinction. But I also think that we shouldn't spend more time talking about how we disagree with the organization than we do talking about actual racism. Unfortunately, it's many brothers and sisters who I know and respect that spend a lot of time talking about the organization and how we shouldn't support the organization. And I'm like, okay, well, what about the racial injustice part? Because that's where... That's where the focus should be. And quite frankly, I think it's similar to, you know, how many evangelicals will say, I don't support everything Donald Trump does, but I do agree with one or two or three policies of his, you know, and we don't go out of our way to say, hey, I don't support all of that other stuff that he's doing, we don't go all of our way to do right. that, but we go way out of our way to talk a whole lot about the organization. So I think it's important to know the distinction, but I do think it's more important to talk about the racial injustices that are impacting certain image bearers of God. Yeah, it's almost like you're saying, and and tell me if I'm wrong, there's a sense in which because the organization has supports a lot of principles that we as Christians would say are troublesome, it almost gives people an excuse to vilify. In other words, I would hate to see that whatever your attitude about the organization is detract from your position philosophically that black lives matter right because this 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 it's called semantic overload that's idea that now this represents when i say black lives matter am i saying it from a philosophical position or am i saying that i support the organization right but right. but i think a lot of people i hear this all the time they'll say things that i think that you would find offensive to say for example no all lives matter it's like we're talking past each other why does that expression all lives matter really sound like it is um is um, detrimental toward the message that black lives matter. Because I think some people will say all lives matter. They're trying to say, well, no, all of us matter. But but there's still a need to say black lives matter 
in the context? Why is there still a need to say that? Well, you know, using the example again, you know, with the Declaration of Independence, you know, that said all men are created equal, you know. So if black people at that time said, hey, you know, blacks, we're created equal and you say all men are created equal, you know, but we still but we're still slaves at that time. You know that you know that would be offensive. Obviously, I know that we aren't in slavery right now. There aren't Jim Crow laws, but there are still certain injustices and disadvantages that Black people do have to, that Black Americans and other minorities do have to fight through. And I think that is a more healthy conversation to talk about those specifics than to talk about the organization or to talk about uh, the looters instead of the reason why people are protesting in the first place. I think that is all. Distract, distracting, actually, you know, opposed to talking about actual racism that we can actually work to fix to help image bearers of God. Okay, that's a good point you brought up because it, it, I always see that there's a, there, people that you cannot ignore the impact that history has in forming something. And if you've got a, a, a past, a historic past that involves some evil act, you will pay a price for that. There will be a consequence for bad history. There just is. You cannot deny it. We've got that in our own history, right? You have all the way back from slavery to Jim Crow laws to segregation to redlining. These are things that are part of our history. We cannot deny those things. I hear one side saying you cannot ignore these things. This, this stuff happened. And I hear the other side saying, well, yeah, but but that's that was then. This is now. So I still see a divide yeah. even when it comes to assessing history, right? Like, like where – how do we deal with that? Uh, divide. I, I think there's no. You cannot deny that that we are now in a position where a whole generation of 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 of, of minority groups of every color are at a disadvantage. The question, though, is um, uh, where do you think that 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 we are today in terms of um, the difference between like the history of racism we've had in our country and what you still see experiencing. Um, we can look at statistics, but I, I'll be honest with you, Veda. I am very – statistics can be manipulated in both directions. And every time I talk about statistics, True. I seem like I still have both sides mad at me, okay? So, <laughs> so talk about what – yeah, right? I mean so, so let's talk about what you think in terms of systemic racism that's going on today. Like where would you say, okay, I still see it here, here, and here, and no one's addressing it or no one's got a plan going forward. Where do you see – um, is there still systemic racism today in your view? And where do you see it? Well, absolutely. But before we even get there, I would just talk about, you know, the fact that we should care, you know, from a human perspective. Talk, And we're talking about image bearers of God. You know, there shouldn't be uh, apathy and whatnot. So, for instance, say, you know, um, I, I know that there's statistics about, you know, uh, white people being um, gunned down police as well as black people and other ethnic groups. But when it's caught on video and there's a black man being being killed by the police and then the first response or at least what's uh, portrayed on the media and on social media is I'm going to wait to see if this guy was a criminal or if he did porn before or if he was ever arrested or something like that before I'm outraged at watching him get murdered. That apathy is a form of some of the racism that exists now, you know, and when the I'm not saying it's only the majority community in America that feel, that feels that way. But when there's many of the majority community, in this case, the white community, who at least appears to take that approach, 
And that's where the, you know, that's how the conversation even starts. You know, I think that that's part of systemic racism right there. The fact that we have to, or the, or the perception that we have to prove or demonstrate that you should be sad to see us get killed. You know, you have to wait for these details. I have to wait, you know? So I think that that's one case. There are, you know, certain things as far as housing and schooling and things like that. That's a big residual effect as well. But I think just from before we even get there, I think caring, you know, there, there's a, there appears to be, and I'm speaking from my perspective and I do believe that there are several black Americans who will share the same sentiment that there's a level of apathy and a lack of care when the conversation even starts, you know, and I think that that plays a part, particularly when it's the when it appears to be the majority community that has that lack of care. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I, I think sometimes that our Christian worldview should shape that. Right. I mean, part of it is that that you might say, well, look, part of what divides us is that we, we see uh, some as the other. You whoever, whoever you are, you're in the other. group. Yeah. I'm in my group and you're in an other group. But Christianity calls us to stop thinking that way from a Christian right. perspective. I don't have to wait to find out if you're um, uh uh, a, a good or bad person by some definition before I can decide that what just happened to you is not right. I mean, we are called to, to, you don't get any credit, Jesus said, for loving those who love you. Okay. That doesn't get right. you any credit. Okay. It's loving right. the people that you think are unlovable that changes the world. And and that's something we don't see happening for sure. Uh, when I come back from the break, though, I want to talk to you. You use the expression systemic racism a couple of times when talking about just the view that we might hold, right? When we, um, uh, for example, require that I need to know everything about this guy before I can decide if, it was, if, if he was uh, mistreated, right? We see a mistreatment of somebody and then we're like, stop and reserve judgment until until we get uh, some sense of who he is. But, but what I want to ask you when we come back from the break is, you know, what – do you, when you think of, of, of systemic racism, that the expression, what do we really mean? Does it mean that the laws or the government practices are, are purposely set up to disadvantage blacks? Or does it mean that the laws and practices disadvantage blacks uh, either un, unintentionally or as a consequence of how they're – in other words, is it, is it systemic in the sense that there is an active effort, an active desire to, to disadvantage uh, blacks, or is it something that's less intentional? And that's something I want to talk about when we come back from the break. Does that sound Amen. good to you? Sounds yeah. Wonderful. Before now, listen, Veda. As we as we do this, I, I I think that there's a lot of statistics that you and I could draw up that I think can be manipulated to to either show one side or the other. And I just thought what I want to do is talk a little bit about that manipulation as well. Okay, so we'll do that as soon as we come back from the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine Radio. Uh, I don't know faith to be an atheist with Dr. Frank Turek, Jay Warner Wallace sitting in for Frank, and uh, with Beta Hedgeman. Friends, Frank Turek here. I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. So if you like what you hear here, would you consider donating to crossexamined.org? 100% of your donations go to ministry, 0% to buildings. We're completely virtual. So if you can help us out, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Jay Warner Wallace with Veda Hedgeman talking about racism here on Cross Examine Radio. Frank Turk is uh, away with his family. 
at the passing of his dad. Be praying for him. Beta, we talked before the break a little bit about the nature of this term systemic racism. Do you think it's really uh, a combination of these two things, that government practices are purposely set up to disadvantage blacks and that or that some just do disadvantage blacks, maybe not as an intention, but as either unintentionally or as a side effect? Which do you think that is? Well, I think that I think that in the early 1900s, particularly in the 1930s, when a lot of laws were being passed, it was certainly intentional to disadvantage black people, whether it be from housing loans that went, uh, I think it was 90 percent, you know, to, you know, to white Americans and even veteran, uh, even things that would happen for veterans. You know, I think 3,200 went out and only two went out to black families and things like that. And these are things that establish wealth and equity and, 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 and things of that nature. But nowadays in 2020, I, I don't think there are laws necessarily, or I can't prove that it's necessarily laws put in place specifically to disadvantage black people. But I do think that there is an intentional ignoring of the of, of the facts that history does play a part in generations that have followed, including my generation, because we got to think I was born in 1988 and from 1981 to 1991, you know, it was this world or it, it was this war on drugs where so many black people were incarcerated. I grew up without a dad. Uh, I think hopefully we can talk uh, before we start talking about certain solutions. We can talk about fatherlessness as well, you know, but but mass incarceration plays a part in fatherlessness. So although there are people that'll say, well, you know, I don't think it's anything systemic about our laws. It's about, you know, fatherless fatherlessness. And if the black community had that fixed, which stats do show that 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 is not uh, nearly a bigger problem nowadays. But nevertheless, you know, it, I think that if we even take that approach of, okay, you take fatherlessness, that's a direct result. Even if you want to say that fatherlessness is the biggest issue, that's still a direct result of mass incarceration, which was a direct result of certain laws being implemented in the 80s and early 90s. So I think that nowadays, although it may not be laws being implemented in 2020, to disenfranchise black people, I think that there is an active ignoring of the of the facts that the, that it does impact us still. That would be my view. Um, OK, so let's talk about I do want to uh, turn a little bit of a, a corner here uh, at some point before we run out of time on today's show to talk about what, what we think is is solution going forward, because even when you talk about the statistics related to fatherlessness, I mean, I think we see this growing culturally, regardless of, of, of racial group. I mean, we see the destruction of the nuclear family. I, I mean, look, when you started, so the way we embrace divorce and, and, and blended families and the idea of, of, of being, you know, it's, it's statistics com completely show and continue to show across almost every metric which we measure statistics for well-being of, ch of kids, that, that children who are raised in families with two biological parents in a low-conflict setting do better. And I think that that's something that's true for regardless of race. And I don't think that that's something we have. Now, we can argue about how any group gets to that point. But we do know that the, the, the statistics are still pretty high, uh, and they're getting higher for each group as we go forward. They're not like stemming. They're not leveling. They're not retreating. The number of, of, of uh, fatherless uh, uh, um, family groups is rising for all, for all racial groups. And so that is something we have to kind of address. But let's go back to the issue, though, of, of, of how we got here. I heard someone on an on ESPN show say it, I thought, pretty well. He said, look – if you had two people who were getting ready to run a race 
and uh, one does not have any racing shoes and has a disadvantage. He sets back 10 yards before he begins, and he's not treated fairly to run the race. Well, then, of course, as the race is being run, the person who has the equipment, the person who has the good shoes and had a 10-yard head start, he's going to finish the race first or he's going to be in a stronger position. Now, you could equalize this. You could give the other runner the same shoes that the first runner has, but the problem is that runner still had a 10-yard head start. And, and right. there's no way to make up the ground, even if you had all things being equal in terms of equipment. And so I, I have a sense that that's kind of what you're talking about, that there's a sense that, that yes, we could we, in 2020, we could try to, to level the field. But how do we still overcome that 10 yard head start? Yeah. And and I would even like to point out, you know, if anyone's listening and you're and they may feel like they disagree. I would just like to point out that oftentimes, you know, conservatives will actually selectively point this out. For instance, Donald Trump got some flack for saying a truthful statement when he was running for president, when he when he was uh, appealing to black voters. He said, 58 percent of your youth is unemployed. Your schools are no good. You're living in you're living in poverty, poverty. Look at your communities. What more do you have to lose? He got a lot of flack for that because it's like, yo, that's rude. But many people said, hey, that's true. But the fact that you would say, hey, that's true means that you know that there is disadvantages that people were born into that they had no control over. That does make it harder for them to, you know, to be as successful as some of their uh, white uh, brothers and sisters. Candace Owens even defended Trump for saying those statements, which means that she knows that that's accurate. So, you know, we could talk stats all day, but I just think that uh, how you worded it was beautifully that it is a reality in America's history that has disadvantaged some. So how do we go about making adjustments to correct certain things? You know, well, so... Yeah. Let's jump into that right now a little bit. Um, I know we could talk a lot more. I mean, we're going to run out of time, though, if we're not careful here. So I want to be able to talk about – so uh, I, I want to I, – I have a view of how I might address issues related specifically to law enforcement going forward to solve okay. some of the problems. Now, look, I, here's what's interesting is that all of us, for the most part, Beta, we come at it from a personal perspective. You have an experience as a 12-year-old that began your – well, you had experience even before that where you were hearing other people tell you about this. So you have mm -hmm. a personal experience that shapes the way you see people. So do I, right? Like So, for example, when I hear that people talk about like, – I didn't see the things – in my law enforcement career that caused me any pause on this issue at all. And I, the way I was raised by a single mom in Los Angeles, right? Um, I, I, to be honest, my views related to race were probably uh, different than some of the people I might have worked with. And I didn't see the things in my own limited experience. Because remember, in Los Angeles County, there are over 30 municipal law enforcement agencies, all of which have a completely different ethos, different hiring practices, different training practices, different set of guys. You can have one experience at LAPD that you may never have at the suburb where I was working or in Los, South Central Los Angeles when I was working as an under, undercover officer. It's very different, right? So there's no like overarching system, even in Los Angeles County, which guides all these agencies. You have a very different experience working for Glendale PD than you will for LAPD. Uh, mm. Very different guidelines. You know, that you're going to experience something different in that community. You were in uh, where you were raised. Was it county uh, sheriff's department? I think it was a sheriff's department, right? Or was it a PD at the time? I really don't remember. I, I think it was PD. I think it was PD. I, I really don't remember, though, to be honest. So with there's you. a culture in that PD. So we have these experiences. Let's move this shift a little bit. Given your experience, where you're coming from, if you said, hey, if I was king of, of, of the world or, or let's say president of the United States, uh, here's what I would do. Here's what I would change 
uh, here's three suggestions that I would change going forward that even though our history got us here, this approach would change us going forward. What would they be? Well, uh, one would be I would have a more clear guideline on what is an indictable offense by a police officer, you know, because before we started having uh, body cams and, and phones with cameras on it, you know, many people, you know, in poor communities felt like, OK, if we start recording it, you know, things will start to change. That's why it was such an outrage with Rodney King back in the early 90s. It was like, hey, it's finally on tape. And then nothing happened. Right. So I think that if there's a more clear guideline, whether we like those guidelines or not, on what it takes for a police officer to be indicted, because more often than not, the officer isn't even indicted, let alone being charged and then the case being dismissed. They usually aren't even indicted. So I think that that would be something that's very helpful. I think that if police officers who did want to speak up or speak out about certain things, uh, the to help civilians who who feel like they're being treated unjustly if they had a safe space because my understanding is that police officers have a no snitching policy just like gangbangers do so so I think that a safe space should somehow be created there. And even as far as our schools are concerned, you know, if if credit was being taught and if if there was a know your rights class in high school and things like that. And because I think that that would help combat some of the things that we didn't have historically in our families because we weren't able to own homes, weren't able to have good jobs, weren't able to do these things. So these conversations weren't happening in our households the way it might have happened in some other households. So if this was taught in all schools, including ours, I think that this would certainly help our outlook. You know, for me, I didn't know anything about credit until I missed the car payment at 22 and I realized I had bad credit all of a sudden, you know, so, you know, so things right. like that, you know, and, and I also think that if a teenager is arrested or if a minor is arrested for a nonviolent offense, I think that he should be able to, he or she should be able to get that off of his record at some point, you know, whether that be, you know, because he uh, enrolled into college or things like that, because a lot of times people are arrested as a teenager and now they still have a record, even though they're 24, 25 and they still can't get a job. You know, so imagine me. Thankfully, I wasn't arrested for anything. But say if I was because I did commit a crime or two, I'm not going to lie. You know, imagine if I was arrested, I wouldn't be able to have the job that I have today. I wouldn't be able to do certain things that I have today. I didn't even start thinking about game banging is actually wrong until I was 17 because I didn't have anybody to tell me. So I think that if we had certain things like that in place, that that would help uh, correct some of the things that are systemic that plagues the uh, black community, not just the black community, even, you know, the Hispanic community and others as well. Those are just a couple. Okay. So tell me, Veda, what's your view when it comes down to it? My, my thinking on this is that, 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 that there's a systemic problem, but it's not a, a problem in government systems. It's a problem in the human heart that, that even if we could, the, the government systems almost need to be in place to protect us from ourselves because our Amen. human inclination is to divide from one another in a way that is very, very powerful. Also, our human inclination is to see each other as groups. And I'm always right. afraid of that because the more we see each other as tribes, 
you're a tribe, I'm a tribe, or all these different tribes who are referring to each other, the more I see tribalism. In other words, the sense that, hey, I don't like your group. So what's great about you and my relationship is you, I'm sure you still have a view about police officers, but you have a contact with one who you know personally. And the more we yeah. see each other as individuals, the less likely I am to say, well, you guys are all like that. Whether it's you looking at cops or us looking at a minority group, and I think that we have to. Re- and by the way, this is not what God God tells us in His Word that God does not look at the outward appearance of a man, but looks at the inward appearance of his heart. Where's the heart? What you don't see in that passage is God saying, "I just look at all of you as a group, and if one of you is bad, ah, I'm done with all of you." So anyway, when we get back from the break, what I want to do is continue our talk. Uh, David Wood, one of our friends, has actually given a short list of things he would do. Let's give some more opportunity for hope going forward on how we might address this issue of racism in America. You're listening to Cross Down Radio. I'm Jay Warner Wallace sitting in for Frank Turk. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or cross-examine in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamined.org. Jay Warner Wallace sitting in for Frank Turek, talking to Veda Hedgeman about the issues of racism in America. Um, Veda, we have a, a common friend named David Wood, who's got a great YouTube channel as well. And he, David spent time in jail for a relatively serious crime. And uh, he does a great job on his uh, recent show talking about the five kinds of correctional officers that he encountered in uh, jail. And he's got three suggestions that he would make uh, right away to maybe help address this. Number one, he says the lawmakers should listen to those who say that certain laws are unjust and then just correct them. Uh, for example, being charged with a gun possession because you're renting a room in a house of an owner who had his own guns in a safe in another part of the house. There are lots of laws that seem unfair. So lawmakers need to listen to those people who are uh, uh, suggesting this is the law that's unfair, weigh it, and actually respond to them. Two, he says, put more personality and character testing in place to avoid hiring bad cops and weeding out those that are. That's tougher, but I'll talk about that in a second. Three, uh, the police chiefs ought to meet with community members regularly to hear their concerns about policing. Um, that's That's powerful. That's the idea of moving from seeing people as anonymous groups to seeing people as a collection of individuals that you know personally, if we can move in that direction to seeing groups as collections of individuals, many of whom we know personally, I guarantee you things will change. Um, also, the second point he makes, Veda, I think is striking. I want to, I'll give the table to you. Um, the idea, I always say it this way. If you have a Facebook page, you're managing the Facebook page. You have a group of people who like, let's say, to build birdhouses. So you start a birdhouse building Facebook page. Well, you're going to do three things. Number one, you're going to have a criteria for who gets to join your page. Two, you're going to have a, a set of rules for how to interact with other people. And three, you're going to have to moderate your page. And this is what law enforcement has to do. It has to have a strong sense of who gets in. And on the what basis of what uh, – law enforcement involves force. That's why it's called law enforcement. 
And sometimes you end up hiring guys who you think can athletically do the job, but you haven't really assessed them to see if they have the character to do the job. As a matter of fact, it's a lot easier to see how many push-ups somebody can do than it is to see who they would push away on the perspective of character. So I think I would be focused on how do people get into this job? Two, what are the rules and training once they get here to make sure they're not doing stupid? And three, who is moderating this in a way to know what is happening on a daily basis in each shift? I don't want to be micromanaged as a police officer. I get it. But as a Christian, I already know that there is a camera on everything I am doing called God. And God sees everything I am doing. So I'm not really afraid of body cams because I know that I don't even answer to the body cam. I answer to God. I got to go home at the end of the night and feel like I did. Uh, I, I responded to my calling and not just you know manage to get through a shift. So I, those are kind of my views on how we we make changes going forward. They're much broader. But but I know you and I would agree that there's a role that Christianity plays in this. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean, you and Frank talked about it a couple of epi- a couple of episodes ago, you know, just about sin being our our primary issue. I don't disagree with that at all. I think that is our issue when it comes to any form of racism being done to any group when it comes to lust, when it comes to anything. I think that sin is the issue and that should be corrected. The only thing that I would like to add to that is that sometimes we say that and then we refuse to go a little bit deeper. For instance, this conversation that you and I are having, I believe it should be more normal because I'm speaking about my experience. I'm think I'm speaking about other people's experience and it actually matters. For 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 example, just really quick, you know, you and I agree 100% on same-sex marriage. We agree 100% on transgenderism and I believe we also agree that you know, people of that community shouldn't be bullied and beat up and murdered for their lifestyle, you know, and if a person who practices homosexuality says to me that that they get beat up all the time, my first thought isn't going to be, okay, well, how often do people in your community fight each other? And do you guys fight and uh, get thrown out of gay nightclubs for misbehaving and all that stuff? Fix that before you compa- before you complain about the six straight people who beat you up last month when a hundred of you did that to each other. That wouldn't be the initial response. And I don't believe that's the Christian response. I believe the Christian response is to actually care about that, you know, because we don't think that people should be harmed. So I think that I think that sin is the root issue, but I, I want each of us, myself included, you know, to not to not use that as a crutch for us to not ever have to get more specific. We're specific when we talk about abortion. We're specific when we talk about same-sex marriage. And even if there is a point where if someone's listening to this interview and they go, hey, that Veda guy sounds like a nice guy, but I disagree with everything he said at least agree on the part where you should care that this is the experience of several image bearers of God, not just several, but when it comes to black Americans, it is the overwhelming majority as far as people who have the view sure have this view sure that you can find some who, who look like me who disagree, but it's the overwhelming majority of us who have a view that's similar to mine. So even if you disagree 100%, at least care 
And I think this it's the Christian thing to do to care. And I think that once we care, authentically care, I think that that helps inform how we move forward and how we be conscious and stuff. So I think that sin is certainly the issue. But, you know, I, I think that we should also be specific. Right. Does not remove our responsibility to change the bad policies, to change the bad behaviors, to provide guidelines, to, to, to do the things we're supposed to do. We can't just say, well, yeah, this is about sin. And so let's just preach the gospel. I get that. I do think the gospel is upstream of all the other problems. And I don't talk a lot about politics in, on any of my work because I think the politics stand on the shoulders of the issue of, you know, who are we? And what is the problem? It's Christian worldview stuff. Is, is the Bible true? And should we take it seriously? That does change hearts. It changes the way we approach. But I do get the understanding that there's a sense in which if that's all we did, you would still see that as deficient. In other words, as, yeah, but you're not, it's not enough. It's 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 a both and, not an either or. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, and even even when we think about uh, scriptures like Colossians 3.11, you know, where it says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, because Christ is all in all. That means that all of our identity should be in Christ and it shouldn't be in me being black, you being white, um, Amy being Asian, um, Jim being Yugoslavian. You know, it is yeah. about our identity in Christ, period. That's what that means. But it also means that if something has happened something is happening uniquely to the Yugoslavians, we should care because Christ is all in all. You know, okay, so, let me say something, you know, Veda, might be controversial, but I want to say it because I see that's part of the difference here too is a generational difference. So for example, I know your experience in the world, especially using social media and technology is different than mine because I didn't have that growing up. I didn't really even adopt that until I was probably in my 40s, right? So, so I mean, I was a lot different life. So in other words, when people express their care and concern, here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing for a lot of young people, in order to express that I care about this, it means this token gesture on social media that I just do something that clicks a box on social media. So now, you know, I care. Whereas in my generation, I'm saying, really, that doesn't mean you care. It means you click the box on social media. It means you, you give the appearance of caring. But it's, right. it's like, so for example, uh, I, I, I resist these notions. I resist these gestures because I find them to be superficial. And I don't want people to think that I am just superficial, uh, you know, virtue signaling to something that I actually agree with, but I don't want to see it as just another. But to me, those are empty gestures and I see them as empty gestures. And so I resist them. And then I, I know after talking to you that I don't want the perception to be, though, that, that, that yeah, but you, I didn't hear anything from you. I, if you're not going to do these empty gestures on social media, there's a sense in which I don't think you care. When in fact, this may just be a cultural, uh, not cultural, an age divide, whereas I'm a boomer. So as a boomer, I'm thinking, well, no, this is, this is how you would express your concern. Uh, I mean, I, I got a lot of people in my age group who are uh, maybe it's a little bit older, five or six years older, who have no social media platform at all, are not even hearing that noise and wouldn't even have a way to interact. I've only jumped in because, right, I'm trying to, to contend for the gospel. And so I'm trying to learn social media and, 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 and maneuver in social media. But still, I have a sense that, especially young people, I talked to a high schooler recently, Beta, who told me that if she didn't join in this social media click or like this or whatever, then she was an outcast uh, from her peer group who felt like the only way to express themselves on any concern is to say something on social media. Rather than, yeah. hey, well, how about what can you do effectively to actually serve a community, 
to actually Amen. jump in and do something to serve a community. That's not even on the on the on the radar for some folks. It's really about well, yeah, but I I, I clicked that and I joined that and I I put that banner on the top of my website and I did all those <laughs> things. So you know I'm good, right? And I don't yeah, think any of us really trust that. You. Yeah, <laughs> right. right, right. So so tell me, what is your sense of that? Do you see a generational divide here? Uh, certainly, I, I think that that plays a part. I think that that plays a part in it, you know, but, you know, we talked a little bit about certain policies. I mentioned some, you mentioned some, and I think that all of that stuff is helpful as well. You, as well. you know, you mentioned, you know, police training and, and stuff like that. I did hear you guys show that you guys did recently, you know, about, okay, well, if you don't say this, you know, then, you know, then you aren't down for the cause. And it, it can't come off as that, you know, at, at, in some instances, it can't come off as that. But I think that, Actions do speak louder than words, and it's more than just making a Facebook post on one day because people are doing it just to be in. So I, I completely agree with that. You know, I think that at the end of the day, you know, if we authentically care for real and we actually are trying to understand pe other people's experiences and not just give them a label and a new theological term and now someone has to study critical race theory, you know, after they just got a master's in Calvinism, it's like, oh, now I sound like a critical race theorist just because I'm speaking about my experience. Like, I'm not a heretic, <laughs> you know, you yeah, know, so yeah. I, I, so I, so uh, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. I think that there are insensitive remarks and behaviors that don't have to be said. And I think that silence actually is better than that <laughs> because oftentimes yeah. what people will say is they'll say hell hold up beta stop you're starting to sound like a critical race theorist i'm like how you know more about that than actually fixing racism you know so right right no this has been a really great conversation with you beta I, I feel like we needed another hour easily to even flesh some of these things out we have notes that i didn't even touch right so yeah, yeah. So i feel much, like people beta, are gonna be mad at me if they get specific uh, the, the, the trust me. I'm grateful. It, well, I'm grateful too, Veda. Thanks so much for joining us here at Cross Examine Radio. I'm Jay Warner Wallace sitting in for Frank Turk. We'll see you here next time. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.